How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Good to see you all. If we haven't met, my name is Jordan Howell. I get the privilege of being a pastor at Veritas. And we announced to our congregation last week in Cedar Rapids that my wife Ellie and I are actually preparing to help plant another Veritas church in DeKalb, Illinois, of all places. So uh, excited to become a Husky. You know, people have said like, are you already a fan of Northern Illinois University? I am, in fact. I know their fight song. So uh, I love this place because part of the vision for Ellie and I uh, wanting to move to DeKalb, Illinois is because of a simple statement, the Lord loves forgotten places. Right? The Lord loves forgotten places. Who would think that a movement of God would start in the middle of a cornfield? But it has. And so we're excited to see what the Lord is going to do in 2025 in DeKalb, Illinois. But a unique part of Ellie and I's story is this idea of church planting dates all the way back to 2018 uh, for the two of us. We kind of caught this vision while we were a part of Candeo Church in Cedar Falls and asked the question, Lord, where would you have us go to best serve your kingdom? And Ellie was getting ready to graduate in 2019, so... We looked at upcoming church plants within our network of churches and saw a dot on a map in East Lansing, Michigan, with Michigan State. And all the Hawkeye fans are like, why would you ever go there? Because they needed Jesus, right? So Ellie and I go on a vision trip in 2018, scope out East Lansing with lead pastor Austin Wadlow there, and we put our yes on the table. We said, yeah, we're going to move to Michigan for the sake of the gospel. Well, The Lord was kind enough to detour us to Cedar Rapids of all places. I didn't think that was kind at first. I was quite upset, but uh, really grateful the Lord brought us to Cedar Rapids. And the unique thing that I had to wrestle with was all of the Michigan State apparel that I had bought before. Because like with the Huskies, I went all in, bought a ton of Michigan State apparel. And it was actually right after Ellie had finished her final season playing basketball at UNI, we were on a cruise in Baja, Mexico, and I'm wearing Michigan State apparel. And I'm walking on the deck of this cruise ship, and from across the deck, I see a guy in a green visor, and he he yells at me, he says, go green. And I had no idea what to say back to him, right? He spotted the Spartan on my shirt and assumed that I was a fan, and I just said, go green, which exposed me as a fraud. Like, I was not a real fan, because if I was a real fan, I would have known, as a Michigan State fan, if someone says, go green to you, you respond with, go white. But I didn't say that. I said, go green, and he, he was so disgusted, he gave me the, like, don't even walk by me, man. Like, you are a fraud. And the reason I tell this story is, to to open up our text today in James 2 and ask this question, could we do the same thing with Christianity? To maybe wear something that's not actually who we are. Is it possible that we can wear the title of a Christian but not actually be about Christ? And the answer is, yes, of course we can. Now, this guy wearing the Michigan State visor, what he probably assumed was he and I had a connection, right? 4,000 people, middle of an ocean, two Michigan State fans. Are you serious? And he quickly figured out we don't have a connection. 
I'm a fraud. And maybe that's been your experience with Christianity. You've met someone who else claims to be a Christian. Maybe they have even gone to the same church as you before. But the more you hang out, the more you get around them, you realize maybe we're not on the same team. Like, we both wear the same title, but maybe we're not as aligned as we thought we were. And I will say, it's easier to look out and say, oh, of course, outside of Veritas Urbana, of course there's a ton of fraudulent or fake Christians. But the reality is, we're in the room today. So before we're quick to apply this out there, as we sit under James 2, the question we have to ask ourselves today is, how can we tell if our Christianity is legitimate? Or to make it more pointed for you, how can you tell if your Christianity is legitimate? You deserve to know the answer to this question. And in fact, eternity's at stake. Eternity's at stake. I'd, I'd invite you to open up to James chapter 2. We're covering a, a relatively large chunk of text today, verses 14 through 26. And a good Bible reading tip or trick for you is to read this in context, to read this in context. So you have to know what comes before it and what comes after it. Well, the verse that comes right before this text references this word judgment. And the first verse right after this text also references judgment. And so James is about to, in the middle of two verses about judgment, ask this question, how can we face judgment? How can we understand if we have real faith? Because as Michael closed out last week, mercy triumphs over judgment. We have this good news of the gospel, Veritas. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That though we serve a royal king, a holy and just God who has given us a perfect law, though we are guilty of it all, even if we have failed in one point, he has offered us mercy not getting what we do deserve. We deserve to be separated from God forever. But because he has sent Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless lamb of God, to live perfectly, to die our death, and to raise victoriously, he has offered us mercy. This right relationship with God, eternity with God forever. And now the question is, how do we know if we've received mercy? How do we know if we've received mercy? And before we dig into the text, I just, I think of one thing my kids have been saying to me lately. Uh, I have a four-year-old and a three-year-old at home along with a 10-month-old. 10-month-old doesn't talk back yet. That's good. But four and three-year-old, whenever they're raising a ruckus and I set the rules straight, they've been saying this to me. They've They've been saying, dad, you're not my friend anymore. And I'm like, well, good thing I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to be your dad right? And dads are going to tell you the truth. And it's worth saying, James is not here to be our friend this morning. And I'm not here to be your friend this morning. I'm here to be your pastor and to talk about what's true. Because as we ask this question, how can we tell if our faith is legitimate? You don't need somebody to tell you what you want to hear. You need somebody to tell you what you need to hear, which is the truth of God. So, We're going to dig in. How can we tell if our faith is legitimate? First few verses in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. 
the word of God says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James is introducing to us a type of faith that doesn't save. You can see that in verse 14. He asked this question, can that faith save him? And the implied answer is no, it can't. And then he gives this example. What does this fake or fraudulent faith look like? Well, imagine there's a member of your church, right? A brother or sister in the faith who comes to you and says, I'm starving and I'm freezing. Now, I love that James uses food and clothing as what this person needs because these are the most basic human needs. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is addressing anxiety amongst the crowds, he says, hey, don't worry about what you will wear or what you will eat, right? God will provide those for you. Or Paul in 1 Timothy 6, you know, godliness with contentment is a great gain. If we have food and clothing, with this we will be content. So James is drawing on food and clothing. And imagine a brother or sister, a member of the same body of Christ comes to you with a real need. And you look at them and you acknowledge their need. In fact, you have what is needed to cover their need. But instead of doing that, you just say, go in peace. Be warm and be filled. And you send them on their merry way. Now, the question we have to ask is, What good does that do for their body? None. None. It does no good. And if you're into underlining your Bible, I would in fact ask you to underline, what good is that? It's used twice in three verses. What good is that? The implied answer is none. That type of faith does no good to the person's body. And in fact, in verse 14, that type of faith does no good for your human soul. This insincere faith that's marked by saying blessing, but not being willing to meet real needs. Now, we live in America. It's 2023. There's a high probability that you don't have someone in your connection group that has come to you and says, hey, I'm out of clothes. (laughs) Or like, hey, I don't have access to buy ramen noodles, right? But there are real needs in this church, maybe real needs that you're aware of. And the question I'm asking is, are you willing to meet them? Are you willing to meet them? I think specifically around the holiday season, people that are grieving the loss of a loved one, maybe for the first time, and what they need is someone who's willing to call them and say, hey, the Lord brought you to mind today. Is there anything that you wanted to chat about? Like, I'd love to come over and visit you. I'd love to just, you know, be a shoulder to lean on. Or maybe you know of a young family in this church who is expecting or has recently had a kid and you're thinking, man, I remember what it's like to go through those toddler infant days. I wonder if they need a meal. 
wouldn't it be great if we brought a meal to this family? Of course. There's real needs in this church. Brothers and sisters, you really know. And the question is, are you willing to meet them? Because if you can acknowledge it, but you just wish it away, what James is saying is there's a good chance that faith might not be legit. It's challenging. But he says there is a type of faith that isn't dead, that isn't useless, but it's marked by one thing. Do you see that in verse 17? He says, faith by itself, if it does not have what, church? Works is dead. If it does not have works, which means if this type of faith does have works, it's not dead. It's alive. It's vibrant. It's worth something. It's able to save. Now, post-Reformation, this word works in the church has become almost a bad word, similar to religion, right? We've kind of distanced ourselves from works. We've said, no, it's not about works. It's by faith alone. Works has nothing to do with it. We're not under the law. We're under grace. And to that I say, amen. Martin Luther, as an early reformer, really struggled with the book of James as he looked at this text specifically because he did not like the word works. It was so stressed in Catholic doctrine that he wanted to create this distinction or separation. Let's stop talking about works and get back to the bare essentials of faith. And in fact, James kind of anticipates this response. As he continues in this passage, he says, someone will say, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works, creating this distinction, right? James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Wow. Strong language, right? You foolish person. You really think that you can separate faith and works? Now, this is actually a decent argument, right? James is using a a common form of rhetoric in his day where he's anticipating this response. Well, Of course, faith and works can be separated. Of course, it's true that good works do not always equal good theology. We've experienced this, right? You know plenty of people who have great theology that have done terrible things. And you also know plenty of people who have terrible theology who have done a lot of really good things. In fact, they might even be more moral than you. And so... On one hand, I kind of see this distinction of faith and works. I can see how we can separate them. But what James is trying to do here is not make the case that good works and good theology are always tied together. What he's doing is addressing his common audience, Jewish Christians, and what he's trying to persuade them away from is this approach to faith that places their confidence in knowing the right answers. He's persuading them away from this faith that says, oh yeah, I'm right with God because I know the right answers. He uses this word believe twice in this section of text, right? Verse 19, you believe 
that God is one. What he's doing there is he's quoting the most famous Jewish prayer known to their entire race, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's saying, you believe that. Congrats. You know who else believes that? Demons, right? Demons can be as orthodox as you if you just know the right answers. And perhaps what's happening in this church or in this congregation, in this setting is there's Jewish Christians who have just heard a hard word on partiality. And they're trying to say, hey, let's, let's stop majoring in the minors, right? Let's get over this partiality stuff. Let's get back to mercy. Let's stop talking about practical righteousness. Let's get back to positional righteousness. This is not about our behavior. It's about what we believe. And James is saying, no, it's not. This is not just about what you believe because demons don't just agree with you. What do they do? They shudder. They tremble in fear. Even their beliefs can be seen. What James is trying to say or tell us is that mercy that can't create change in your life has no ability to save your soul. Yes, post-Reformation, we would agree we are saved by faith alone. Amen. That is good news. But James is saying faith is never alone. Faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by works. Faith and works have to be connected. And James says, hey, if you don't believe me, you foolish person, let me show you. And he gives a couple examples Pick back up with me in verse 21. The word of God says, Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed or made mature by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So, you're probably confused. Uh, you should be. Verse 24, I want to look at with you because this is perhaps the most confusing verse, not just in the, the book of James, but in the New Testament. It's been debated and disputed for centuries. And the reason is it seems to contradict Romans 3.28. So we'll put Romans 3.28 up on the screen. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome, and he says this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then you read James 2.24 that says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the question is, who's right? I'm here to tell you the answer is yes. 
They both are. But you have to understand the context in which they're writing. So there's two words that we need to define as we look at these two verses kind of next to each other. These words are justified and faith. So I'm going to look at Romans 3.28, and I'm going to let you know how Paul is using these words as he speaks to the church in Rome. He says, for we hold that one is justified. That word means declared righteous by God. Declared righteous. So we hold that one is declared righteous by faith. And what Paul means is trusting in Jesus Christ. So, put simply, we hold that one is declared righteous by trusting in Jesus apart from works of the law. That's good news. That's great news for people that have fallen short. Now, how does James use it? I want us to look back at James 2.24. The first two words are really important. I, I, in fact, underline that as well. He says, you see that a person is justified. How he is using justified is not declared righteous, but rather shown to be righteous. That's why he uses the words, you see right? You can tell if a person is shown to be righteous by works and not by faith alone. Well, how has James been using faith in this section of text? In a mocking tone, right? He's been talking about faith in a fraudulent way, not actually trusting in Christ, but claiming to trust in Christ. So James 2.24 would say, you see or you can tell that a person is shown righteous by looking at their life and not just what they claim to say or claim to believe in. That's tough because now what it asks us to do is look at our life, to actually look at our works and see if there's any evidence that God has changed us, that his mercy has moved into our hearts and has shaped us. And he uses two examples. The first is Abraham. How many of you guys have heard of Abraham before? Okay. He is pretty famous, right? Especially to Jewish Christians. They look at this man as the father of the Jews. His story is covered from Genesis 11 to 25. He was the one who was given the promise, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And now the question is, when was Abraham declared righteous with God? Well, verse 23 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. That happens in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God takes Abraham out and has him look up at the stars of the sky. And he says, hey, as many as the stars in the sky, that will be your descendants. And Abraham took God at his word. He believed him to be true, even when he and his wife were barren and without child. He trusted in the promise of God. And here it says he was credited with righteousness. Now... When was Abraham's righteous status seen? When does James say that we could actually tell that Abraham was not just declared righteous, but shown to be righteous? When he offered his son Isaac on the altar. That happens in Genesis 22. 
What you might not know is though that's seven chapters in your Bible, that covers 30 years. 30 years from the time that Abraham trusted in the promise of God and actually was shown to be righteous by putting up his son on an altar and being willing to sacrifice him to God. 30 years. And you know what happened in between there? Hagar. An adulterous moment where Abraham turned his back on the promise and indulged in the flesh, took matters into his own hands. And I think the reality is for many of us in this room, our profession of faith might be marred by a moment of failure after we've become a Christian. And the hope in Abraham's story is you can still be shown to be righteous. To sacrifice him to God can still be shown to be righteous. One moment of failure post a confession of faith does not define you. However, as the world around you looks, guess what? It might make time, it might take time for you to actually continue to live in such a way that people would say, you're a friend of God. But God's mercy is real for Abraham. And the Jewish audience hearing this text initially would say, of course Abraham had faith, right? He's the patriarch. He's our founding father. He had unfathomable faith to put his son up on an altar. But what about us? What about ordinary people in a cornfield in Urbana, Iowa, right? Like, pretty sure your name is not in the Bible, just like mine. So what about people like us? Well, the good news is, The second story is a woman by the name of Rahab. And Rahab could not be more opposite to Abraham. Abraham was a man. Rahab was a woman. Abraham, a Jew. Rahab, a Gentile. Abraham was rich. Rahab was poor. Abraham was a patriarch in the faith. And here we see Rahab's status was not a patriarch, but a prostitute. And yet God gives us this example of Rahab as a woman who is moved by mercy. Someone who has real, genuine faith and it showed up in her life. And the story that he's referencing is in Joshua chapter 2. Where God's people are about to enter the promised land. But first they have to overcome the city of Jericho. So they send spies to this city. And there's a woman by the name of Rahab who looks at the spies of Israel And says, oh my goodness, you are the people of God. Your God is the true God. He is the one who destroyed the Egyptians, the the one that parted the Red Seas. I believe that your God is real. And so what she does, she turns her back on her own people and welcomes these spies into her own home and sends them out on their way. Now, one of the sweetest things about Rahab's story is it covers not even one chapter. Not even one chapter. As you look at her profession of faith and her response in faith, it covers about 12 verses. Now, Rahab's primary failure came long before her profession of faith. But yet, in a moment, in the same day, she makes a profession of faith and then risks her life to side with God puts her life on the line because she says, your God is the real God. He is the living God, and I believe in him. 
And James says, yeah, her faith is legit. It showed up. And the good news of this text is this is accessible for all people. This type of saving faith is not just for the rich Jewish men. This is for the poor Gentile woman with a marred past. This faith is accessible to all. Ephesians 2 says it this way, For by grace or unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That is good news, church. You are saved by grace, through faith, through the finished work of Jesus, and you cannot add to it. But now the question is, how does works play out? Well, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So works are not a weighty burden on our back to make us earn salvation. Rather, works are a worthy response to a salvation that's been graciously given to us. Our only appropriate response is to say, God, you came, you lived, you died for me, you resurrected, you saved my soul. The only appropriate thing I can do is live for you. To live that out in a real, practical way. To bring all of life under submission to God and say, here is my life, it's yours. Now, last week, Michael used this word picture, this illustration of, imagine you're on trial. You're in a courtroom. And last week, Michael said, imagine you're on trial for being a fake Christian. And the attorney's trying to build a case against you. Well, let me, let me just change one minor part of that plot line. Let's say you're back on trial. But this time, the question is, are you a real Christian? Can you be convicted of being a real Christian? And what evidence would the attorney use against you? Right? Would the attorney say, yeah, we've been following this guy for weeks and he cannot help but wake up and read his Bible every day. He actually believes what Jesus said. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's a real Christian. Would they look at you and say, man, this woman actually believes Jesus' words in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. She prays all the time. She actually thinks that she can do nothing on her own because she needs Jesus. Would they look at this church and say, wow, these people actually believe that God is their prize. Can you believe that? They've been giving generously with their finances to serve the church and to serve the community because they say they're storing up treasures in heaven. Right? Can you imagine that playing out, now we have to wrestle with, do we have real evidence? Do we have real evidence? Because real faith does not just receive mercy, it responds to mercy. You could say it this way, real faith responds to mercy with faithful living, with faithful living. You respond to mercy by saying, okay, yes, I have received mercy beyond measure, and now the question is, how can I live that out? 
How can I obey God and not just have him be my savior, but my Lord? But I want to I give you a word of caution here. You have to understand what it was going to cost Abraham. What it was going to cost Rahab. A- Abraham puts his long-awaited beloved son on the altar. This promise of blessing that God had given to him years before responds to mercy with And he says, God, if you tell me to do it, I'll do it, no matter what the cost. I don't care what blessing it costs me. If it gives me you, that's all I need. And then Rahab, like I said before, risked her life. Right? If the people of Jericho would have found her out, she would have been killed. But she said, I don't care because I want to be obedient to God. She put her life on the line because God is worth it. And now the question is, what are we going to do with the mercy of God? What are we going to do with the mercy of God? And the first application point I want us to really wrestle with is, have we received mercy? Have we received mercy? We have to start there. Maybe for the first time in your life, you are looking at a text like this and you're saying, my faith is not legitimate. My faith has cost me nothing. I've known the right answers because I was raised in the church from the time I was six, but I've never trusted in the goodness of God. I've never lived in such a way that says, Jesus is not just my Savior, but my Lord. And my plea to you, Veritas, is receive mercy. Believe in the promise of Jesus Christ. That he lived perfectly because he knew you wouldn't. That he died on a cross to take your place and that he rose again victorious as kind of the receipt to prove that sin does not have the final say over your life, but he does. Receive that mercy. And then from that place, our only appropriate response is to be a people that are moved by the mercy of God and not just receive it, but respond to it. To respond in faith. To begin to practice the commands of Christ. And a question we have to wrestle with, is there a place where our beliefs and our behaviors are not aligned? Is there a place in our life where what we say we believe and what we practice are not aligned? If you're struggling to answer that question, ask people around you that know you really well. For all the husbands and wives in the room, ask your spouse. They will tell you. (laughs) Right? These are places in our life that are by nature blind spots, which means we can't see them, but other people can. That's why we follow Christ in community. People can say, wait a second, you've said that Jesus is the only way to God, but you haven't shared your faith with your family members at the holidays for a decade? I don't know if you really believe that, right? We need friends that will give us a hard word so that we can become obedient. We can let our faith be seen. And this isn't to show off, right? It's not like, okay, let me go build my resume in front of other people. But Jesus says, no, our good works should shine before other people so that they would glorify our God, our Father in heaven. That is a command. We're called to live out these good works. But just like it cost Abraham and Rahab, 
Jesus tells us, hey, you want to be my follower? You want to be a recipient of mercy? Here's what you need to do. Pick up your cross and follow me. And don't just pick up your cross. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Die to yourself. Die to yourself to come alive, to be alive in your faith, to be connected to your Lord and Savior. And as I think about what it looks like to live this out, I love that I've gotten to do college ministry for the last five years. Because let me just tell you, for the last five years, we send college students home every year. And without a doubt, one of them will come back and look me in the face and say, my parents think I'm in a cult. And I'm like, yeah, that's funny. I've heard that one before. But here's, here's the problem, church. These college students have come to college and they have experienced a real faith, a vibrant faith where they begin to take God at his word and then they go home for the holidays to a culturally Christian family that does nothing with the Bible and they're living differently in front of their family. And their parents, rather than saying, hey, maybe your faith is legitimate and maybe ours isn't, say, it's easier to slap a title of cult on your belief system. Oh, you believe you have to read the Bible every day, right? To be connected to God, right? You believe that like you need to pray in order to be patient with your family. You believe that you should go to church every Sunday, even when you're home over break, because it's helping you worship this God you love. You believe that you should give up a summer to go across the world to share the gospel because people in Bangkok, Thailand have no access to Jesus. Yeah, we believe that. We believe that. And our college students are living this out in such a way that it sets a pace for our church family. And so the question I would ask is, could that be said of Veritas Urbana, right? Not like we become the cult church in the school. That's not what we're after, right? But as people look at Veritas Urbana to say, these people really believe God's word. They really take God at his word. They're willing to sacrifice for him. They're willing to share him. They cannot help but worship him. They won't stop singing. (laughs) Wouldn't that be amazing to be a church that says, hey, we're going to give. We're going to go. We're going to serve. We're going to confess our sins. We're going to read our Bibles. We're going to live out our faith and put ourselves on our own cross. We're going to die to ourselves every single day because we serve a God who did that for us. He is worthy to be worshiped. And if it takes me picking up my cross daily to accept the invitation to follow him, I'll do that every single time because Jesus is worth it. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I just thank you for James chapter 2. What a heavy text, a confronting text, Lord, that sees through the spots in our life that we've covered up. Maybe intentionally and maybe unintentionally, God, that we have deceived ourselves into thinking that positional righteousness just does away with practical righteousness. That Because we've received grace, we can just live however we want. And I just thank you 
Thank you for your word, which is alive and active. It cuts to the heart. It shows us where our sin is evident. And now you've invited us to, to receive mercy. Once again, thank you that mercy does triumph over judgment. And that because of what you've done for us, we now have the opportunity to respond to you in faith, to take you at your word, to put our idols on the altar and to worship you because you deserve to be worshiped. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.